What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Bronx Attorney Broadcast. Today, we have Mike Fifidio, owner of Fifidio Law. Mike practices eminent domain law, which is the process by which the government takes private land and uses it for a public use. Mike has some great advice and some even better stories. We even get to hear some high school wrestling war stories. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking some time to talk to me today. Uh, oh, no problem. Well, thanks for having me. To get started, can you, can you just give us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, stuff like that? Sure. So uh, I'm a Long Island guy, uh, Kings Park, Suffolk County. Um, went there for high school. I went to school in New Jersey for a little bit. Uh, that's Ryder University before I transferred to St. John's uh, University for undergrad. And after that, I, I did a little work. I was bartending for a little bit, became a uh, paralegal. Uh, that's how I ended up at Berkman Hennick. And after a couple years of paralegaling with a bunch of attorneys who were my age, they went straight through. That's when I ended up going back to St. John's for law school. I continued working through Berkman Hennick. As, as you know, I worked there during law school for a little while after. And then just about a year ago, I had left Berkman Hennick and started my own practice uh, as a solo practitioner and just started with the PLLC. So that's where I am. All right. So let, let's go back a little bit. Was there, when you're working as a paralegal, uh, I did the same thing. Did you, was there a, ever a moment or was it the natural progression or how did you make that decision to make the leap to go to law school and become a lawyer? Okay. So there was definitely, you probably remember too, then I think it is a natural progression for, you know, for, for certain people that kind of had always maybe saw a little bit more than just being a paralegal, but there was, if there was ever a specific moment, I remember one day at lunch, I was out at lunch with two attorneys who, again, they were actually a year or two younger than me, and they were maybe second year out of law school, and they were good friends in law school, and the three of us were at lunch together. And I remembered saying something because I taught them that, the, you know, I taught them kind of the, the things that we were doing in that field. I had been in that department at Berkman Hennick for a while and I was team lead. I had a whole bunch of different uh, teams that I had been on. So I had seen the whole process. So I kind of helped them through it, explained it because they were coming straight out of law school. And I remember just kind of saying, like, I, you know, guys, I, I think I peaked. And one of them, Tim, he just said to me, he's like, of course you peaked. You're, in a, you're a paralegal when you should be an attorney like us. And that was, I wouldn't say that was like the moment, but if there was ever like a defining moment, I think that would, that would, uh, that would be it. Okay. So then I went about just, you know, taking the LSAT, you know, doing that whole thing and got the grades. And I was actually going to take it again, but because I was a St. John's undergrad, mm -hmm. uh, they reached out to me and they were just like, you know, what are you doing? We already have your grades. You, we have your LSATs now. We could get you in for the fall. And this is like July of 2015. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I think I was like the last person. To, I, I wasn't even applied yet. And they said, we get it in, we'll get you in. It was, it was actually, it was, and that was a crazy moment where I remembered I, fo I followed up with the admissions office and they were just like, I was like, you know, everything was submitted like a week, you know, last week. And, uh, you know, and they, the admissions office just like, Michael, check your uh, span. You've actually already been accepted. Congratulations. Your <laughs> deposit was due a month ago. So you start class in two weeks. So I was really uh, unprepared to start. But I mean, we just kind of with all things, you kind of get ready and you jump right into it. And you get ready when yeah. as you need to. There's no perfect moment. So. And so you said you were last man in. So would you say you were you were the Mister Irrelevant of uh, the St. John's Law <laughs> class? I was the I was the Mister Irrelevant, and then also twice, twice I was Mister Irrelevant because then I was the last person I think in our class to get an associate offer. I didn't get my associate offer from Berkman. Really? Keep in mind I had been working there through law, before law school, through law school. I didn't get my associate offer until December. Of 2018. Wow. Yeah. So wow, it was something. Yeah. No. So it was really. Uh, yeah. And so it's, you're you're in a a very niche area of law that 
you know, I didn't know about until a case came through our office. So Mm -hmm. what, what do you call that area of law that you're in? So there's a bunch of different names for it, actually. So you could call it eminent domain. You could call it condemnation. Uh, In other countries, they call it appropriations. So it's all really the same type of thing. Or some people just say takings. Mm -hmm. And that's really the what we're talking about is takings. And people ask me all it's government takings. And people ask me what it is that I do. And I say, you know, sometimes it's hard to really explain, or I don't want to really open the can of worms because once you get me going about it, it might be a little harder to stop. <laughs> so sometimes I just say it's it's real property, but it's also constitutional law. Right. And I like to kind of focus on the cons it I like to focus on the constitutional law side of it. I think that's really something special, but it really does touch upon every aspect of property law. So I end up in these crazy situations where I'm researching all these issues in real property because they just come up in my cases. And it kind of reminds me like when I was a, everything we're doing, we're just always continuously learning. You and I have talked about this, I think, privately that everyone's thinking, like you look at your most senior attorneys And they don't really know. They're kind of just figuring out like everything themselves, just maybe 10 years ahead of us. And I remembered as a paralegal, I remembered used to have stacks of files on my desk and some of them in the back corner were the problem files. Well, the problem file is just one with an issue that you don't know yet. So I would think my lights go off here. (laughs) You stood still for too long. Get them back on. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Um, so yeah, a, a problem file is just a, something with an issue that you're not yet familiar with and you don't know how you're supposed to approach it yet. And once you do, those problem files aren't problem files anymore. So something I really appreciate that an attorney did for me was when he took over a department, he said to me, you know, and there's paralegals that want to just do their job and kind of want to get out of there, you know, and then there's paralegals, probably the ones that want to be lawyers that want to figure it out. And this attorney said to me, he's like, Mike, I want you to bring me one problem file a day. And it was like, you know what, if you're working on five, that was a volume, that was an eminent domain. So that was very volume uh, industry. So if you were working on like 10 complaints a day, well, don't just do the, and you had like a quota, don't just do the, you know, drafting of the simple complaints to up your numbers do seven or eight of those and bring me one problem file a day because once you do that then that stack of problem files just gets smaller and smaller and then you know how for the next time right so let's let's start from the beginning because i i think that a lot of people don't understand what exactly condemnation and eminent domain is and how it can happen so if you're a property owner, what, how does this happen that the government will, you know, essentially take your property? So it starts off, you may not, by the time you are notified as a property owner, and I do both sides of this. So this is what's really special for me is Berkman Hennick was a, was a very municipal firm, but my mentor, Saul Fenchel, he was really more of a claimant's attorney working in a municipal firm. So we ended up on some I think he had tried when we were in law school, I think he had tried to sue a municipality and they're like, well, no, you can't. <laughs> they're our clients. So, yeah. you know, you're going to have to actually, you're going to have to be the attorney on these takings. And he used to say it was like, uh, it was like hiring a, you know, a hiring a hacker to do your IT type stuff or hiring like the bank robber, I guess that maybe or hiring the bank robber to guard the vaults. If you have a claimant's attorney as your government attorney as your condom or your taking authority uh, you kind of see both sides of it so the reason i say that is when you are the property owner when you get your first notice that there's going to be a taking or a public hearing you could be way way into uh, the government could be already years into the process especially because they often have to do studies to get to that point where they can even take it You know, you can't do anything in government overnight. Like there's a whole process that goes through this. So 
really you're just, I guess the starting point wouldn't be when the owner gets notice about it. It would be more when the government realizes that there is a potential public purpose that is needed and a property that is in like that is situated for that. So, you know, a lot of times the romanticism is, you know, you're, they're taking grandma's house for something, you know, like, but really a lot of times build a highway. Oh uh, yeah. It really, it's when you, when you're by a, a lot of times they want to, it's, it is by a highway and most people's homes aren't on highway. So a lot of times it's commercial properties. And I think municipalities are starting to see, there was a heyday. There was a heyday back in, especially on Long Island, Queens, Long Island, where they were just Robert Moses. Like, this is what you're talking about. It was just taking properties for to revamp uh, infrastructure and transportation. So that might have been then. Now you get a lot of strip takings, which is, you know, you are on a road and they want to expand that road 10, 20 feet to add another lane. Or it's not just another lane. Now the thing is bike lanes. You mm. cannot get federal money for a project without some sort of green component like a bike lane. So typically that's what they're doing. And a lot of times it's by a commercial commercial road. So they're going to so take... The government yeah. will say essentially like, sorry, you're losing 10 feet of your, you know, 10 by 30 feet of your parking lot to build a bike lane. So... Exactly. Usually, you know, a bike lane could be a component very typically, um, but it's really, like you said, it's usually to expand, expand the road. So if you go around, you'll see a lot of these roads with new construction. That's why, you know, a lot of times when I see construction, I say to myself, wait a second, what's going on here? Because you have a three-year statute of limitation and they don't typically start construction right away. They get the takings, they're done in phases a lot. So, you look at all of these things and basically, so what's going to happen is they're going to, it's never like that. You'll get notice of a public hearing. And then the public hearing is going to be the first step. And it's going to be, listen, we are debating X, Y, and Z project. Uh, nothing's ever official at that point. It's not, and they'll just say, listen, we want to hear you out. We want, you know, it's, it's, this is due process. You need notice and a hearing. So that's how it starts. And they'll say a lot of times that they haven't made a decision yet, but you know, because of all the things that they had to do just to get to that public hearing, the, this wasn't something they, they just said, hey, you know, let, let's do this. They put a lot of thought into this. So by the time you have a public hearing, you can assume that there's going to be some takings going forward with this. And what people have to realize, too, is that there's going to be a record of that public hearing. So sometimes you want to, you know, you want to go, uh, you want counsel to go, but you want to be a little careful with what you say there, uh, because that is going to be part of the record. So then what happens is they compile the record for the public hearing. And then from that moment on, you have 30 days to challenge the public purpose. Mm -hmm. And in New York, the eminent, it's eminent domain cases are, uh, guided by the EDPL, the Eminent Domain Procedure Law. Mm -hmm. And in that, you have A takes, which is the state of New York. That's one set of procedures. And then you have B takes, which is every other municipality. Whether any other municipality that's not the state of New York, the state of New York rules to the Court of Claims. Everything else could be in your local Supreme. And they have very similar processes, but you'll find actually that they're a little bit different. So the first step is, well, who's taking your property? And but from there, you have 30 days from that uh, from that public hearing. That's when you're going to start with your challenge just for public purpose. And that's called a, an EDPL a 207 challenge. So and at that point, are you you're trying to argue that the government should not take your property for this public use? It's I've only I've seen that very, very rare. Do you win on an EDPL 207 challenge? Because it's okay. almost it's not if you'll remember like rational basis review, like do they have a, is it a, you know, they give them, so they give so much deference to a local government mm -hmm. that if they say they, they need your property for something again, like I said, it's not a, on a whim. So they've thought this through. They're going to, they've thought this through. You would really have to, you would have to show there's some sort of flaws in the, 
in the studies that they relied upon. It's, it's a, I've only seen it maybe once or twice where it was successful, but that doesn't always mean that just because you don't stop the taking doesn't mean by the courts doesn't right. mean that it's unsuccessful because it may have been the examples that I'm talking of. I know of, I know of examples where they become so politically unsavory that the municipality ends up pulling back. It's, you know, again, it's not a good look when the government is taking your property. Mm -hmm. So it starts, there was a seminar that was on this and it was called, uh, you know, trying your case in the court of public opinion. So you Mm -hmm. may not win in the appellate division for your 207 challenge, but I have seen at least two examples of uh, a condemnor just abandoning ship because the public yeah, like the project. Yeah, just just say, you know what? <laughs> you know what? We don't need that bike lane. Or right, you know, right. it's like if it's a lot of times, so each state is different on what they'll allow for a public purpose. So New York is one where uh, economic redevelopment is a legitimate public purpose. That's not allowed in every state. And that comes from uh the, that Kilo case. That was you know, uh, city of New London. And it really wasn't that big of a deal. It got a lot of attention, but it basically just deferred to the states and said, you know what? We're not going to come up with a federal standard on this. So you go states, mm-hmm. you say what is a legitimate public purpose. And the, the people of New York, the, the state said, you know what? We want to be able to take private property for a public purpose. And that public purpose could be It is legitimate if it's a public-private partnership. So if I'm, you know, if I'm a a mayor and I see some areas that I think could be used better, we go again. It'll come back up. Uh, There we go. If I think that a private developer could make this nicer and turn it into a little downtown, something like that, Uh uh, that's a legitimate public purpose in the state of New York. Other states, not so. So how do you get involved in this and what is your role? So once, so the way I like to say it is I could get involved on either side and I could, you know, if I've seen, if I'm working on the government side, I've seen a lot of governments, I wouldn't necessarily say abusing the process, but I don't think they're treating property owners fairly or mm-hmm. there's this whole issue. There, there's issues in how municipalities interpret certain provisions of the EDPL. So I like to say, listen, I, I'll be very fair. And if you're working for the government, you can be fair to a property owner and you can be fair to the taxpayers because that's who is going to be paying for the property themselves. But if you get it right in the first stage, that's, that's uh, good for everyone involved. You know, maybe you have less claims coming in. Maybe you have a better, you know, the process is if you, I've seen municipalities where they had, they said, yeah, you know what? We read the EDPL. We could do this in-house and they'll make certain mistakes there that a claimant's attorney is going to capitalize on later. So typically, what, or, you know, that's the government side of it. From the property owner's side, uh, it could be, you know, they could have, gotten notice about a public hearing. They could have gotten notice from, it could have already been taken. That's the thing too. It could have already been taken and they don't even know how to process the money from the state. And that's kind of one of the things I'm talking about. You'll get two letters. Uh, You'll get two competing sets of paperwork from the state. Uh, And municipalities can do this as well, not just the state, but one is called an agreement of adjustment. And one is called an advanced payment agreement. And they look almost identical. You sign that agreement of adjustment. You just waived your right to seek further compensation. You've accepted their offer. Mm-hmm. You sign an advanced payment agreement. So someone comes in and I, I show them two papers. I'll say, this one, throw it out. Throw it out. Don't even, the, the agreement of adjustment, just throw it out. Don't even risk accidentally signing. Sign is the advanced payment. Yeah. Is that because they come in? the initial offers are less than what a property owner could eventually obtain? So this is kind of one of the interesting things uh, that I was talking about a moment ago. So to the offer itself, 
they're not just making this number up. There's an appraisal that goes with that number. So the government has gotten a pre-vesting appraisal. Now that's an appraisal that says what the property we are taking is worth pre-vesting before we've acquired it. And that's right. the basis of the government's initial offer, which you can accept as payment in full, or you can accept as an advanced payment, which is saying, we'll take your, your initial offer while reserving the right to file a claim within, you know, in a timely time period. Mm -hmm. um, we'll pro and, you know, there's hoops that you have to get just to get that initial offer, that advanced payment. And then the next step is substantiating a claim evaluating what they offered you versus, you know, what you think you could get if you litigate this. Now, this is the interesting thing is that the EDPL, and this is, if you go through the legislative history, EDPL was in the 1970s. They went through a couple of different revisions, like maybe four, four or so uh, committees on this. And they added the language that the initial offer has to be 100% of the highest approved appraisal. That was not coincidence. What you had in the 60s was actually it was it was Nassau County. Nassau County was hot, was getting an appraisal and they weren't hiring attorneys. They were hiring negotiators to go out to the property owners and they would say, listen, if it's one hundred thousand dollars was the appraisal. You negotiated, you are capped at 50% of that. Go out there and offer and negotiate. Right. And there was there was a law review study that was cited by uh, the committee in the legislative history that showed like 90% of property owners did not receive even 100% of the government's appraised value of the property. This is what I mean. It's, so that's why they added that language. And there were reasons for that. A lot of times people think I'm being the government. For some reason, people think like, well, it's the government. They're not going to shortchange me on this. Uh, that was cited as a reason. <laughs> I, I don't get that. That was, one, that was one that was cited. Like people think it's, and, and surprisingly, um, I found out later after I got involved in all of this, my dad, he had a, you know, he had a property that was on a main road, actually not far from where, where I am right now. And he told, I'll, I'll never forget, this is like a coming of age moment where, you know, I'm there with my dad, my brothers and sisters, I'm, you know, I'm talking about work, I guess. And my dad says, you know, they took part of my body shop for a uh, permanent domain back in, you know, back in the 80s. And he said, he's like, but don't worry, they made me a great offer, this, this, and this. I was like, I could have gotten more. And yeah. it, it was just like that yeah. moment where he's like, because it's a business decision for them too, right? They don't want to be pay paying too much for something that they could get. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people like your father who are pretty happy with what they got. So a lot of times, what? so the purpose behind an advanced payment, and this was all part of that um, legislative history, the whole policy behind that is so that the property owner can go out on that day and get a replacement piece of property. Mm -hmm. So if... So that was kind of the idea is you could go out and you get a replacement piece of property. But I think that was kind of more in the time period where they weren't strip takings, when they're taking your entire lot and now you got to go get a new lot. Well, that policy makes sense then. What ends up happening is that initial offer ends up coming, at least in part, uh, the war chest for the litigation. That's your litigation. So, you know, we almost all condemnation claimants attorneys work on a contingency. Right. You know, if they offer you a hundred thousand and we get you two hundred, we'll take you know we'll take a percentage of that additional money over the advance payment. Mm -hmm. um, and there could be hourly billing that's involved as well. But the real thing is you need expert witnesses. You know, we've talked about this. You, everyone needs. I mean, you don't necessarily need one. You can do it in other ways. But I've never had a claim where I didn't use an appraiser, and I've never personally been involved in a claim that didn't have appraisers for both sides. I do know of one, I wasn't involved with it, but I do know of one where they came in with just like their broker who said, Hey, this is what it's worth. And I'm pretty sure that one settled. I don't know how well that would played out in court because um, appraisals are, there's a whole practice to this and they have their standards. They have their designations as well. Um, but then there could be, other witnesses as, to, as well. A lot of times, if something is 
not everything is in your expert witnesses uh, credentials. So what you really don't want is you don't want your expert witness going beyond the scope of their, their, uh, their credentials. So what I like to say is, um, I think this was, I don't know, it's one of those football coaches, maybe it's Belichick, maybe it was Joe Judge when this was, when he was in favor, but he was like, you know, I'm not going to, I don't Too soon, you. too soon. Yeah, too soon, too soon. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll see what happens now. But I think it was Joe Judge where he said, um, you know, I'm not, and this didn't work out for him, I guess, but he said, you know, I don't ask people to do something they can't. I ask them what they can do and I build something around that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get your appraiser and they are your valuation expert, but are they a developer? No. So you may want an engineer to come in because the other interesting thing is it's not what's there on the taking date. It's what's reasonably probable to right. be, could be the highest and best use. So that's why it takes a little bit of, it's a little interesting where you have to be a, a little creative. You have to say, well, this is what the use, is this maximally developed? Is that, you know, is this um, maximally productive? Is this, and there's like a four standard test for appraisers. Is it uh, physically possible? Is it legally permissible, economically feasible? And fourth is maximally productive. Just because something is finance is max or is physically possible and legally permissible doesn't mean that's your highest and best use. You could, you know, if there's no interest for it, there's no there's no demand. So just because and the that's where the government will maybe take advantage a little bit. Well, they'll say, well, you got some crummy properties. Like, look at it, they stink. And it's like, well, that's in its current condition. Mm -hmm. You know. Beyond that, you know, but then you have to do certain, the burden is going to be on whoever is saying that the highest and best use is different than the existing use. So if you're going to come in and say, my highest and best use, which we base our whole case off, is different than the existing use, you better be ready to substantiate this. And it's tough because you're going to be, it's going to be heavily litigated. And this could mm -hmm. take, this could take years. This right. could take years and it could take I've, I've had witnesses cross-examined for more than a day on the stand it's mm -hmm. just like it, it's pretty intense and there's a lot of prep that goes into that and there's a lot of you know i don't want to say second guessing but you know i i have i have trials that are coming up based on appraisals that we did in 2019 like yeah, I, you know yeah. i did a, a, you better believe me working you know I had different advice for an appraiser in 2022 based right. on, you know, everything I've seen then, you know, how it went in 2019. I, you know, we were fresh out. So, right. Right. And so essentially in these litigations, you're, you're trying to prove that your undeveloped parcel, if developed into, you know, something else would have been more, uh, valuable than the dollar fifty the government gave you. It, it could. It doesn't necessarily have to be undeveloped, but there's a big issue of like expansion potential. So that's where I've seen that happen. Uh, you know, Saul and I when we were when we were two L's, we did get into a little trouble on a case where mm -hmm. the property was already developed, and you know we had someone saying that they could build second story, and I don't think the courts really got it because the property was that pro that building was built knowing there was a taking coming so uh, it, it, it wasn't in a vacuum but i remember the the state's engineer was like that building can't support a second story and like, well <laughs> it can't support a second story and i was like look at the trial testimony it's like it wasn't based on that building right when, right, right you know and that's and but what's that that what that is called is that's called a condemnation blight did mm. the condemnation the, the fact that the government was taking the property, did it blight or did it uh, depress the value? I've got cases right now where the government says the same thing. Oh, these are crummy, crummy industrial properties. It's like, yeah, because it's 2022. You haven't taken it yet. And we're looking at this has been earmarked for taking since 2009. Who's right, going to develop right. a property that it that the government has their eyes on? Um you know, because no one's in the no one is in the business of litigation. Litigation mm -hmm. other than us, other than right, the litigation. Right, yeah. So you know, people are trying to make money else. on it, 
knowing yeah. that it's going to be taken eventually. So, you know, what they did doesn't reflect what they could have done, you know. And I have I have a couple cases like that where it's you see on the site plans, it's like, well, approximate taking errors or, you know, pending taking errors. And I've got one case, we'll see, you know, we're waiting on a decision where the government represented a taking like 10 times, not, not 10 times, but it was sizable. It was multiples over what they ended up taking. You also get into this policy of what's called a design and build contract. So it's like when the plan, the preliminary plans are preliminary plans, and then it's in the discretion of the, the contractors who are actually doing the construction. Is this what we need? Or And that's, it's smart for those municipalities because you can have a claimant's attorney, or you can have a, a condemnation attorney there and say, whoa, Mm-hmm. You, and I think this has happened once because I have one case where if it was a, that taking was another put in, you that you would have substantial claims, but they stopped right where they did. It would, it would have basically rendered the whole property valueless. And I have a hard time believing that that was just, and I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. Like that's something you want to happen. You don't want, you know, it is good that the government is recognizing this. And that's kind of what I was getting at from the before is that I think that governments, municipalities that say, well, we've got in-house counsel and we're paying them anyway. So Mm -hmm. we might as well just have them do the taking. That's how you're going to run into problems. You know, so if you're cheap now, you're going to pay for it. Right. This episode of the Bronx Attorney Broadcast was brought to you by me, Will Ferrero. Uh, I'm an attorney of prior law right here in the Bronx, and we primarily practice in personal injury. However, we do also do a, a variety of areas of practice. So I can help you with just about any sort of legal issue that you might have. I'm admitted to practice both in New York and New Jersey. And if it's not something that I can personally help you with, I can connect you with someone in my network of attorneys who is best equipped to help you with your legal issue. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Bronx Attorney. You can send me an email, Ferrero at Prior Law, or call me at the office, 718-829-0222. And now back to the show. So you were working for this other firm as a paralegal and then eventually as an attorney, but then a time came where you started your own firm. So how did you make that decision? Okay, so that... uh that was also just like paralegal to lawyer was kind of, a, I don't know what we called it a moment ago, a, an evolutionary process or a long, long-winded process. Um, it wasn't something that I just woke up and said, this is what I'm doing. It actually started well. It almost, it started almost immediately after admission because my situation was very different. Um, my department was a two-man department. It was myself and uh, the partner, Saul Benchell. And then I was admitted in March of 2019, but he had actually, through some tragedies, he ended up just retiring very abruptly in February of 2019. So it was like, whoa, I ended up just jumping straight into it. And we had, he had already had, if this was, like I said, February, March of 2019, we already had a full trial calendar government taking cases where we were special counsel to a municipality and we, we had six trials scheduled for that year. And I'll never forget. I was, I was so like, I'll never forget. I, we had Manhattan co-counsel on half the cases and then my firm was taking the other half. Mm-hmm. And I remember I wasn't admitted yet. So I just said to the attorney, Manhattan co-counsel, I was like, listen, you have to be there. I got to be there. Can, you know, you just su- if you just supervise me, then I could do this, you know. Mm-hmm. And you're already there, and while you're just- not admitted to practice law, or immediately in- after, Imme- immediate. I'm not. Am I, am I going to get myself in trouble? For this? No. <laughs> if, you, if you have if you have attorney supervision, yeah, yeah. you can you can you know you can address the court. And I mean, he was right there, and he's got half the cases anyway. So it doesn't matter because I didn't even get to the, right. the government, the staff attorneys swarmed in and they were like, don't let him up there. Right. So um, they ended up just at, and again, wasn't going to trial. It was all just like conferences, uh, status conferences, things like that. 
So they ended up adjourning that first case, which was like April. And then my first one was going to be in July. And they ended up putting, dividing my caseload half with Manhattan co-counsel and half they brought in another attorney who actually was the attorney that had interviewed me for character and fitness. So this whole thing was just surreal. And because he was a condemnation attorney too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just randomly. No. So he was opposing counsel on a bunch of cases that I had. And Saul and I were at a property inspection with him and his associate. Saul was, you know, kind of, we had already decided we were going to approach him about him expediting my, or, you know, getting me in there and, you know, getting me admit, you know, interviewing me and admitting me because I didn't, I took a while to do my pro bono too. I never did pro bono in law school. So I had to do it um, in December, January, 1890. So I was talking to his associate and I was like, yeah, I'm still just waiting for, you know, this character and fitness interview. He was like, oh, well, we're on the committee. Like, why don't you do it with us? And then, you know, uh, we okay. yeah. And then, so, you know, so me and his associate then meet in the middle of the property with, you know, Saul and uh, it was, you know, the other attorney. And he's like, Michael, I just heard that you need uh, to do a character and fitness. He's like, are you from, did they teach you what, you know, like, I so we, we talked about the whole process of, me, you know, me going to interview with him. And then like a month later, the whole thing happened with my boss. So I'll never forget. I was at that character and fitness interview. And this is a very senior attorney. He's in his, or at that point, he's like 70. He's been mm-hmm. doing this for decades. And he says, he's like, Mike, you're going to see on those eight cases, Saul and I, we're going to go battle. We're going to really, you know, beat each other up over this. And I like start sweating on the spot. Like he doesn't know it's going to be me. <laughs> like, oh, and, I'm man. <laughs> and I'm like totally not ready for this. And I'm like sweating bullets. And then he ended up, like I said, he ended up being my co-counsel on half of those uh, government cases. And it was surreal. I really put in, you know, I put in a lot of work. Like I was trying to work with the, it was like, it was almost like a movie. And I'll never forget my first trial then with Manhattan co-counsel and his associate was July of 2019. And it was on the anniversary and I was prepping the engineer. We had an appraiser and we had an engineer and I was writing the questions. I was prepping the engineering witness and they hadn't made a decision. I just got admitted. And he's like, listen, we'll, we'll figure out, like, I'll do the questions later on. But we had prepped this so much. It was just like the night before, like as we, if it was a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday trial, Thursday trial, Monday night, Tuesday, no, it was like Tuesday night. He says, you know, Michael, you know, our engineer's going up tomorrow, probably like after lunch. He's like, I was like, yeah, I know the schedule. And that seems about right. He's like, and, you know, you're going to question him. I was like, I thought he was kidding. I look at the engineer and we're just like, so we actually, that night we went out to, uh, we went out to dinner, me and him, and we just did it like another, you know, kind of, you know, prep type of session. Right. And then we went the next day and it, it was, it was like, it was a beautiful thing. It really went well. Um, that case, that case ended up coming through. I think we won when we got the decision. Uh, we were happy with it. We limited them incredibly, but I remembered saying, well, Everything from the engineer was accepted. Everything from our engineer was accepted. So I was very happy with that. So that was July of like, and it was on the one year anniversary of taking the bar exam. So I was just like, this is incredible. Yeah, I was like, this was incredible that I'm questioning my first witness in court one year after taking the bar. And then I had, if this, and so this was like July 24th. I had another set of trials starting like August 5th with the other attorney so that going before the same judge and the judge is like all right i'll see you all you know in uh in two weeks and i was like it's not even two weeks and i was like and like i was like i you know i've got to come back and get a whole nother attorney prepped for this and again this is the same attorney who prepped me for did my interview and is telling me he's gonna beat up my boss in trial yeah. And then I'm sitting next to him and he's got two young attorneys for the property owner on the other side, like my age, our age, and he's beating up their witness. He cross-examined that guy for like three days where I said, I was like, is his strategy just to make this guy quit on the stand? He just wouldn't <laughs> let up. Hardest, and I'm like, 
we would go back to his office for lunch and everyone's in like the greatest mood because we're winning these cases. I'm like, oh no, this is going to be awful. I'm going to be the young attorney on the other side getting beaten up. Right. So at that moment, I really started saying, I need a dream team of witnesses for mm-hmm. this case. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up putting together just, I said, this is like, I've told all the witnesses, this isn't even appraisal or engineering anymore. This is straight Sun Tzu out of, you know, art of war. You want to put them in a position that when the fight breaks out, when you exchange, because that's what happens in a condemnation is you are both, you file your claim and that starts your time period to, uh, we went, we went a field of the whole, uh, how this starting your own practice kind of went, but that's how it's, it really started. Long long answer. (laughs) Long answer, because it was a long process, seeing this whole thing, going through the whole process, Uh then a couple of these trials with all these great attorneys, then March of 2020 comes around and we go completely remote. Mm-hmm. Now I'm working remote as a one man department for a year. And I got COVID in December of 2020. And they end up asking me to come back to the office. And they, that firm was back in June of 2020. I was the only one because I take public transportation and I am, you know, I'm a one man department. Why am I coming into the office? Yeah. But then they said, you know, the first Friday of January, 2021, they're like, Michael, you have COVID. You got antibodies. No excuses now to not come in. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, so with that planted the seed, I was like, you're just not happy here. I wasn't happy there. And March, 2021 came around. I was like, you've been doing this a year. I had a trial scheduled for June. I said, listen, I shot an email out to the equity partners. And I said, you know, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I'll finish two and a half months notice. I'll finish that trial in June. And thanks. That's it. And if you want me to. And they're like, no, no, we definitely want you to. And then um, like a month later, they realized I wasn't bluffing or I wasn't trying to get a pay raise or get some concessions from them. And they said, uh, We've got no one to take these to work these cases. We're going to take, tell the clients to get lost. Now, at the same time, actually, I should have said this as well. I had been interviewing at, for an associate position elsewhere, and that was in what started in like August, September of 2020. And after a couple interviews, I basically brought up that I didn't want to stop doing eminent domain, so I was going to do whatever they were hiring me for as a property firm, but I wanted to keep doing eminent domain. So after I had to do a fourth interview, I interviewed with a partner, two associates, but that was one interview, HR. And then they're like, do you want to do this? You need to speak to the managing partner. And I was like, Hmm. great, a fourth interview. And I walked in thinking it was going to be like another, the fourth associate interview. And I was kind of in a bad mood. I was like, is he going to ask me, like, tell me about yourself? I'm going to say, ask everyone else that I interviewed here. (laughs) Well, when I tell you, he, it was like walking, I walked into Shark Tank and he was just like, so tell me about this eminent domain. We didn't talk at all about the job I was interviewing. Yeah. For. He's like, tell me about this. How many cases a year? What's an average per case? What do you need to bring? In? I was like, guy, right. what you're talking about. And then I went, he's like, get back to me with some numbers. I like got laughed at in Shark Tank and I had to come back with the financials. So I looked at the billing statements from the department and I saw how much money the firm was making. And I got sick because I was like, they were making all this money and they didn't give me an offer till I was graduated for six months. Yeah. So I was like, this is unbelievable. So I sent that to him and he's like, eyes lit up. He's like, we can make some money on this. And then we kept pushing out my departure date. Then it went from June to July, July to July 31st ended up being my last day. I still didn't make a decision yet. I woke up like August 1st, August 3rd. I signed all these consents into my name and I hadn't figured it out with the other firm. We were negotiating. I got so scared. Well, I was just like. So you were you were having all the cases transferred to you at this so point. So yes. And that's when I got my office address in Kings Park because they were going to just be in my, the consents were just going to be in my name and home address. And I was like, I don't want to file my home address. So let me get an office address. And I was just using a virtual address. And I said, well, you could do Madison, you know, Lexington Ave, Wall Street, you know, be like that. Or I said, no, you could do your hometown at Kings Park. Mm-hmm. And but now I could have, you know, I'm going to try to get on the Chamber of Commerce, I keep saying. 
Uh, okay. So that's how it started. And then we were talking about, am I going, were they going to buy my firm and then they just assume all the cases or uh-huh. do I transfer it to them? We hadn't figured it out, but we were dealing in good faith. And then August, so I wake up Monday, August 3rd. And it was like a real tough decision because a moment for me, because I'd been working my entire life. And I remember waking up and saying, Mike, you don't have a job for the first time in your life. You're not going to get a paycheck in two weeks. What are you going to do? <laughs> and I had to like will myself out of, out of, you know, get out from under the covers, get to work. Because I said, no one's going to pay you right now, but you got a lot of work to do. You got a yeah. lot of clients. You got people depending upon you. And if you say that, you know, a lot of times I write on like a dry erase board, like simple messages, mantras, and it's just, it needs to be done. It needs to be done. And if you say that and you're the only one that's going to do it, you'll, you'll go and do it. So then I was so scared after like a couple days went by, I emailed that partner and I was just like, I don't care. I accept. I know we haven't even figured it out yet, but I accept. I'm coming on board, whatever you want to pay me, whatever. And Sometimes the best deals are the ones that you don't make. And he wasn't doing anything undecided by me in any type of way. But we just said, I was like, I was giving them so much equity. I was giving them so much of the percentage. And yeah, they were going to pay me a nice salary. And I was gonna, I was, it was going to be better than where I was. But then I said to myself, you know what? Bet on yourself a little bit. So yeah, then I start, So So that's how it all started. I said, I'm going to bet on myself. And I said, I'm going to try it for a little bit. Um, then it worked out that a check kind of came in uh-huh. and it went to, it went to my old firm and they called me. I was like, that was on our agreement. That's my check. Send it to me. <laughs> and I, you know, I cut them, you know, I did, you know, we negotiated a fee split, you know, right. I, I get the line share of it, but they had a lien. So in, in place of the lien, I paid them some on that case, but it was still like, okay, now this is going to, it's small steps. Anyone that wants to do this, you know, it's small steps. So I didn't go out and didn't buy an office. Uh, office space. I said, I'm going to work from home. I'm going to get a virtual office. I'm going, I had already gotten a registered domain name. I still haven't set up my website. Um, I, I went to it today I, and there was nothing there. <laughs> yeah. It's, but it's, it's registered and it's there and it's waiting. Um, and that's, that's like, we got to get that going. Team. I know. I, and I've spoken to someone multiple times about it, but again, I don't really, I've gotten, I'm in a very, my situation is so unique. I've got all these cases. And I've got my, my clients end up wanting me to do other stuff for them. Usually I don't want to because it puts me out of my comfort zone so much Mm -hmm. and I'm busy and I'm, but I'm just like, you know, it's hard. It's hard to say no to opportunities. That's the other thing too. Don't say no to an opportunity. And the thing that people have to realize is I said this, you could fail miserably. I said I could fail miserably and I'm still going to be happier that I took this chance and even Love if you that. fail, yeah, you, you, you fail and you say to yourself, the sky didn't fall. You know, like think about what it is like, if, what's the worst that could happen? If, well, if the worst that could happen is you could die or end up in jail. Well, maybe don't do that. But if mm-hmm. the worst that could happen is you got to go get another job. Take that chance. Take right. that chance. Especially when you're young, take that chance. So I did that. And then what I did was at the advice of a friend, I started doing remote doc review assignments you know i started doing remote doc review and it was like it was almost it was a little insulting to pay but it's like you know what you can do it from home you get some cash flow coming in Mm -hmm. and i was working my other cases i was trying you know and that's the thing i i had to get a little bit more balanced the contingencies versus the hourlies you start looking at things so differently you have to start tracking your expenses i didn't know until i did my taxes how much i spent at fedex I mean, it worked out, <laughs> but it was just like, because I was doing all this stuff at FedEx. And then it was like, well, you know, you realize after that, it's like, okay, good. Keep, keep a record of your expenses, yeah. go through your expenses. Um, that's number one. Think about how you're going to get paid. Uh, and what do you need? Absolutely. And then, you know, don't be afraid to ask people for help. Like where I am right now, this isn't my office that I love this place, but this is one of my client's offices. Mm-hmm. And he says, if, if Mike, and it started because I had him as a condemnation client. Then he called me because I deal with, like I said, so many property issues come up. He, he called me. He's like, Hey Mike, what do you know about the village code on X, Y, and Z? And I was like, well, 
actually. I know a little bit about that. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, X, Y, and Z is happening. I was like, you know what? Let me take a look at it. Ended up being that that case ended up taking like two years of my like two years of my wow. life. It started at Berkman, and it was just like, oh my god. And we ended up finally getting a, a you know a, a resolution to it, but I didn't charge, and that was again that was their fault because you know firms need to recognize when they have someone that's doing good work for them and cultivate that. Mm-hmm. I didn't charge on this because he was, you know, we had him on a contingency case and I went to the partners about ret- retaining us on this other matter for him on an hourly rate. And the partners were like, get rid of this, get rid of this. <laughs> and I, you know, or they, they were supposed to set like, it was like, this is a loser. He's in trouble. He's just a loser. We're not going to be able to get him off on this. And that's a loser mentality, you know, like, so they're like, we'll set up a meeting. And then the partners never like followed up through on it. And he's calling me. So I just kind of, you know, winged it. And we mm-hmm. kind of just went from there and we did it under the contingency. And I was like, he was like, can I pay you? And I was like, well, why? You're just going to give it to partners that don't. So then I left and and then it got like weird. It's like, well, I'm not going to start charging now. So I did that whole case. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was just like, and it was, it was, it's always the things that are supposed to be this. This is great advice too. It's always like this. It's always the little types of things that end up being like the most time consuming and like stressful. Mm-hmm. We joke that like he, there are gray hairs in my beard and there are for each one of this guy's, you know, this guy's cases. But, you know, he says to me, I call, you know, when we were talking about this, I was like, I don't want to do it for my apartment. Um, so let me, let me, you know, I, I spoke to him yesterday and he's like, I was like, can I use, you know, the office? I, I do my trials virtually from here. Um, but I, I think actually I am getting to the stage where maybe I want some brick and mortar space. I think right. you know, that might be the next step. First, next step is the website. Next site, step is the website. Then maybe the brick and mortar. So it's really just, I know it, there's, it's a long winded answer. It's a mm-hmm. long answer, but the answer is not even done because it's it's never done. So I, I just registered uh, my PLLC. Like, and that's the thing. Other advice to people would be register all of these. And fortunately, I didn't wasn't making money in my first, you know, I was making I was getting by on the doc review and that one case, but that was like ten thousand dollars. So it's not like, you know, yeah, you have to pay a self-employment tax as self uh, as a solo. Um, right. but before you know anything big came in. I, you know, you had to make sure you get your, your tax, you know, your, your, your system in place so that, you know, a small business owner's biggest expense is going to be taxes. So Mm -hmm. prepare yourself for that before you start making money. If you start, if you don't prepare yourself until after, well, then the genie doesn't go back in the bottle. So get, you know, you have to do one step at a time, but it has to be in an ordered sequence that makes sense to you because like I have, you know, I was just setting up certain bank accounts and stuff. And it's like, well, let me start with this. You know, it's just, we'll start with this one. I'm not in a rush. And then, you know, you need your IOLTA account, you need right. the trust account. And then it's like, okay, once you have your trust account, it's like, well, then you need the bank account for your fees. So it's like, once it goes from there, it's going to go to yours. It's like, well, I got the check coming in. It's the client money. So it's going into the IOLTA and then I'll come back in a week and we'll set up the, the other bank account. So those are the things you really need. You need some sort of way for people to communicate with you. Typically a website will be very important, but I have a bunch of witnesses who are already vouching for me. Mm-hmm. I have clients that are already, I, you know, I had an established. You don't need book. the SEO because you got the word of mouth going. And, and it's also what works for me doesn't work for everyone because you know eminent domain is so niche right if you don't go with me there's like three or four other attorneys and and i've got my reasons why i think you should come with me as opposed to them as well so and it was Mm -hmm. it was just it was one of the best moments for me was when i was blind copied on an email from one of my witnesses to a guy i never met before never heard of before and he said you know, so-and-so I, and like the email, the subject was like attorney. He's like, 
you should contact Michael Fidio. His office is in Kings Park. This is his phone number. Uh, in my opinion, and this guy, he's been doing this forever. He's just like, in my opinion, he's the best eminent domain attorney around. Wow. He really, nice. he really can't. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was a lot. He's like, and it was, it was, it meant so much because he's actually working with mm-hmm. the top New York City attorney. And I've said this too. It's like, you know, you go to like, you go to the top firm and is it really the top attorney in New York City working your case? Or is it, you know, some associate there that's doing mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. that's, you know, not much different in age than myself. And, you know, they're, they're, they're complete. I don't want to say they're complacent, but, you know, I'm, I more, I will grind. Like I, it never, it never stops. And I really do. And that's the thing too. It's like with this whole thing with that, um, that commercial transaction that, you know, we were kind of talking about before as well. It's like, yeah, there's a guy that wants to do it. And it's just like, you don't care about this client at all. He's looking to just build them through the roof. Yeah. I'm here. Like I actually care about this client and I'm here. Like, yeah, I have to, I have to remind myself, this isn't charity. This is a business. Mm-hmm. It's my business, but you know, it's, it's working out well for me where you start, you start out doing people favors and then you know what, what you, you reap what you sow. Mm-hmm. And if you put out good things into the world, it comes, you know, and a client of mine who I've never actually met, but we, we are very close because he knew my boss and he says, he's like, Mike, a lot of these attorney, a lot of these clients, they just want an attorney they can trust mm-hmm. that they know isn't trying to build them through the roof. Right. And I, you know, that's, that's so, that's this, that's mm-hmm. what I'm, that's what I'm doing. And, you know, also I do, like I said, I like the constitutional law aspect of it because I like fighting the government because no one else is, gonna, <laughs> no one else is really going to do it. Yeah. Um, and it, it just drives you crazy because they, there was this one article that says eminent domain is a David versus Goliath battle. It's true. When you're going up against the state, they went, you know, they've got, I, I, I'm laughing. They're emailing me today. I've got all this stuff going on. And I send them an email a minute later, they get back to me with response. It's like, it must be nice not having anything going on right now, but to really make me, you know, deal with this. Um, the, the top attorneys there say we, we do give a lot of deference to solo practitioners because we mm-hmm. know they're doing, doing everything, but that would be the other thing. Don't let people necessarily know you're a solo because they will, uh, they'll try to bury you at work. And I just say, well, try to bully luck. you a little bit. Yeah, they no, And that's, that's the thing. Bullying is so prevalent in the law and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be. We, you know, we don't, we shouldn't be like that when we get into those positions where we can, um, you know, and we'll, we'll see if we end up in that, with that same mindset, but no, you see a lot of the stuff and, you know, you just have to, the only thing a bully respects is someone that stands their ground. There you go. So, you know, I, I typically at the end, I ask, you know, what, what kind of advice you would give to somebody who's kind of like half in half out thinking about doing their own thing. But it sounds like you just gave such a good advice there. So I'm not, I'm going to forget that question. Um, I I will, I will share one thing just because it's, uh, it's June 21st, 2022. And what I will say is we're in very unusual economic times. And, you know, we, you know, I laugh because this is like my third unusual economic time. I graduated yeah. from college in the in the, the Great Recession. That's why I was bartending for a little bit. I had a liberal arts degree uh, before I became a paralegal. And then law school, we had like, what, a year? We had like a year of admission before the pandemic happened. Right, yeah. And then it was like looking like it might be good again. Uh, now, you know, things aren't looking so good. So I'll say that is, you know, consider the economic environment. If, you know, I am very, and count your blessings. I'm very blessed because things just started turning well for me, you know, like really turning well for me now where it's like, I don't feel like I, I've spoken to other solos and other people. And it's like, I'll tell them, I was like, no, if I, if I were in your situation, I might go back to a firm job. Mm-hmm. You know, I might try to weather this, we don't know. It could be a year. It could be nothing. It could be a year. It could be a year and a half. You know, you don't, there's so much economic uncertainty right now. So there's good things about that for being a solo. Uh, I love it. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever really be able to go back to a firm. Um, And if I do, it'll be a little different, but you know, even I have a friend that we were just 
I, that was the advice I gave him. We were talking through this whole thing and I work with him on some things. I say, listen, if you got to go back to a firm for a little bit, keep, keep thinking long-term. Everything you're doing now is for something in the long-term. So even if you don't get your firm right now, start thinking about the business side of it so that when you get there, you're in that position. Got it. So I, I will ask you one last question because another thing that you and I have in common besides, you know, being St. John's law grads and graduating at the same time is that we were both high school wrestlers. So I've heard some rumors. And is, is it true that your senior year, you pinned the Catholic school state champion? So no, that is actually, that is a Kings Park urban legend. It was in my, <laughs> it was in my sophomore year. It was oh. in my sophomore year. And he wasn't state champion just yet. We end up in our senior year in the semifinals. We had a rematch and it was, this was the tournament that was like maybe two weeks before the league tournament, which is our county qualifier and Suffolk County have to place top three. And we had, I was, I was so gung ho for this, for this semifinal match. And I was actually winning seven to two with like 30 seconds left. And in the finals, I'd be wrestling the number six ranked kid in the county who I'd beaten twice. So I was like, I, I was already looking at my name on the forums <laughs> in that sixth ranked spot. I was like, you're going to win. You're going you're gonna to beat this. The, now he's officially Catholic school state champ. You're going to beat him. You're going to go and you're going you're gonna to get a third win against this kid who's ranked in the county. You are going to be ranked six in the county. You're going to carry that momentum. And I was up by five, three seconds left and he took a shot and we rolled through and we did like a barrel roll and they called me pin. Oh they called no. Me pin. Little, little was, touch, I, touch call. It was, a, it, no, it was, it was only, and he, and like, it was, I'll never forget. Cause I'm sure the tape is out there somewhere. I was like, I got up. That was the first time I was like, no, no. Like, like, and I was just so upset. Cause but that's what happens. When you start seeing your name on the already in sixth place or sixth rank in the county, so you gotta um, stay humble. You gotta stay absolutely. But I will say, I did adversity. You gotta battle back from adversity. Um, I didn't even, even you know, even if you're not going to be first place, that was my thing. It was like once I wasn't first place in that tournament, I was like, I didn't want to wrestle. I think I told my wrestling coach that because in the the consolations for third and fourth he said you're gonna wrestle uh your jv partner and i was like bs he's gonna forfeit like mm -hmm. why right and he's like no no he, you're gonna wrestle him. you have to earn i was like i was so mad I, I ended up wrestling him i guess i was a little you know you, you have to be humble and then you went back went to the you know you, you just have to battle back when you take a loss you have to battle back so what was the best win you ever had so that there's a lot too many that to count. The the one that the one that stands out in my mind was that I was thinking of, and it was actually junior year. So it wasn't it was, I was about to say you had to battle back, and then uh, this is what I did. No, but my sophomore year, I ended up getting uh, losing in the league finals to a kid. It was my second time wrestling on the now I'm 0 and two against him. Uh, mm -hmm. He was like we wrestled in middle school twice in high school uh, and he beat me in the league finals and it was pretty bad. You know, he beat me up pretty bad. Then we ended up having to wrestle back for third and fourth place his senior year, my junior year. And like I said, third and fourth place in, in league five is when you're in losing, you're going home, your season's over. So the county and tournament, right? For the county tournament. Yeah. So third place is county qualifier, fourth place, Maybe you're an alternate, I guess. Um, so I battled back. I beat him. He actually threw up on the wrestling mat. And we really, we really battled. And that was probably my favorite win, but it's probably his least favorite win because that was, and that's what means so much to me. It's, yeah, I'm one and two against him, but I was his last wrestling match. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, yeah. So, all Great right, so, sport, and you know, and and wrestlers make the greatest attorneys. So, Will, it's not just something right. to share. I think you're, I, the fact that you're doing all this, and I've had many conversations with you on this. Uh, I've said that before. I think you're doing great things. I appreciate that. So, if I'm if I'm a law firm owner and I have a client come to me saying that the government is going to take 
you know, a portion of their property or their whole property. How do I get in touch with the best eminent domain lawyer in New York state? Well, you one day soon, you'll be able to go to videolaw.com and there'll be more information there. Uh, but in the meantime, you can email me. Uh, that's my name, Michael at video, F-U-F-I-D-I-O law.com. Or you give me a call, 631-357-1610. Figure it out. All right. Thanks, Mike. This was fun. Thanks, Well, Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bronx Attorney Broadcast. Please like, review, and subscribe so we can help the channel continue to grow. And if you're interested in connecting with any of the guests, please let me know, and I'd be happy to make the introduction.